From the newsroom of Impact Alpha, I'm Monique Aiken, and this is your Impact Briefing for Friday, November 18th. Today, Impact Alpha's Amy Cortese and Full Cycle's Stefan Niccolo talk methane, carbon, and other developments from COP27, the global climate conference wrapping up in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. But first, here's what you need to know from the week in Impact Investing. Billions of dollars in capital are pouring into climate tech. As negotiators work in Sharm el-Sheikh to raise global climate ambitions, private capital was continuing to flow. KKR took a $400 million stake in Serentika Renewable. The Delhi-based company provides low-carbon clean power for energy-intensive, hard-to-abate industrial customers in India. Energy Impact Partners closed on $485 million for its early-stage climate fund, a first for EIP. The New York-based firm made its name with a network of corporate partners looking for climate solutions that were ready to be deployed. And Indonesia announced it shut down a big coal power plant, well, in about 2037. The Asian Development Bank will provide up to $300 million in debt financing to decommission a 660-megawatt coal-fired power station about 15 years ahead of its expected shutdown date. And if you're looking for solutions that still need funding, Dig into Climate Finance Tracker on Impact Alpha. The creator of the tracker, Eric Burlow of Vibrant Data Labs, has identified ways to bridge climate tech and climate justice in the energy transition for lower and middle income populations, nature conservation, and regenerative agriculture. The municipal bond market is getting a new look with social bonds, ESG metrics, and racial equity frameworks. Impact Alpha kicked off its Muni Impact coverage with this week's Agents of Impact call. One example is New York City, which was able to get a discount because of the investor demand for its $400 million social bond in September. It was the city's first social bond, said Assistant Controller for Public Finance, Tim Martin. In the long run, that's going to pay off. But I could even say that in this particular transaction, that more than the additional work that we did uh, brought in extra demand and allowed us to lower our yields. And it more than paid for uh, itself uh, in this transaction. And finally... Can blockchain re-energize nuclear disarmament? Nuclear disarmament required effective verification. Current monitoring systems are antiquated. Lyndon Burford of Path Collective envisions a global army of citizen scientists using off-the-shelf tech to track nuclear signals and feed them to a blockchain in a fast, cheap, and profitable global nuclear verification system. Hear him out in Impact Alpha Q&A. It's been a busy two weeks at the COP27 Global Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Amy Cortese caught up with Stefan Niccolo, a longtime contributor to this podcast, to get the latest on methane, loss and damages, and catalytic capital. Stefan, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Amy. So you've been at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh this past week or so. What's the vibe been? Yeah, it's been a, first of all, it's, it's, it's been a great week, I think, overall. Um, you know, 45,000 people descended on Charm and, you know, from private and public sector. And I think the vibe has been one of excitement that we're here to do some work. And it's, uh, you know, it's time to put together our plans and talk about execution. And that's exciting for folks, right? We can kind of get past the, the speeches and start to think about how we actually get the work done. And, um, you know, if the next 48 to 72 hours, uh, many negotiators and teams and observers will be uh, in the blue zone, you know, throughout the night, 
really hammering our way on the details and um, let's hope we get something really productive and positive out of it. And tell us, what are some of the key themes um, and sticking points that they're negotiating? So there's a lot. Uh, I would say, let me highlight maybe two or three key themes that are worth diving into. Um, the first is, you know, every year there's kind of big topics that are really difficult and sticky to get through. Um, this year it's around loss and damages, right? So the, um, the call from the global South for uh, monetary compensation for the uh, effects of climate destabilization over the last couple of years. This is something that was agreed to in Paris, uh, but has not yet been fulfilled. Um, you know, the number 100 billion was kind of plucked out of the air, but we haven't really gotten there. And so um, this is the first time it's really been on the table, part of the firm, the, the agenda set by uh, the Egyptian delegation. Uh, it's not clear we'll get there. And I think there's a lot of efforts to think creatively around how we might fill some of those gaps. You know, ultimately, this is kind of one of those things where, you know, if you if you keep putting off uh, the, the deed or if you keep delaying doing your homework, it only gets worse, you know, before, uh, before the due date. So um, the hope is that we can find some ways to plug those gaps because the climate disasters are worsening. And we can look at an example in Pakistan, uh, which is, you know, still a third underwater right now. And, um, you know, the, there's a, a real call for this to be settled so that we can move on to, to other pressing matters. So that's one theme I, you know, as we're recording this, the negotiations are still happening. Not really clear it'll happen, but I know, you know, from sources uh, on the ground, they're really trying. Um, and, and hopefully we can get to something of a, a consensus and an agreement around uh, some numbers for losses and damages. And, you know, ultimately this is about, you know, systems liability and we got to figure out how to maybe work around them and, and think creatively around how you can source some of that capital. I'd say the, uh, the second big theme um, is one to be really hopeful about. And that's methane. Uh, so, you know, last year was the first time we had methane show up uh, in a global accord out of the COP. Um, the global methane pledge came around. It was, you know, it now stands at 150 plus countries that are signatories. So that in and of itself is a, is a win. Uh, we didn't come in with that number of countries signed on to the global methane pledge. It is a pledge that says countries will make every effort uh, to reduce methane emissions by 30% of 2020 levels and coming into Charm and into the COP, you know, the fear was that uh, we wouldn't uh, be able to put teeth to this and that we uh, ultimately would have, you know, not just 2021, but it looks like 2022 be our worst year, worst years of methane emissions ever. So, you know, this one's really urgent, but if we can get it right, if we can really start to move on these numbers, we're talking about whole tenths of a degree of warming averted. Um, there is no other realm where we can have as much impact in such a short time frame. And so this one is really something to be hopeful around. And, you know, again, Secretary Kerry's team is um, leading the charge. The U.S. is really uh, holding a lot of bilateral agreements in place to get countries signed on. And what's most exciting is that countries are starting to uh, develop and uh, release their uh, roadmaps for how they'll abate and, and reduce methane emissions from three key sectors. Uh, oil and gas, waste, and agriculture. These are detailed plans um, that uh, I'm sure we'll talk about this later as well. Um, these are detailed plans that will uh, give a guide for how perhaps the private sector and funders can can integrate and play their role. And I'm really excited to share some details around that too. 
Great. Yeah. And I know you've been um, very involved in, in pushing forward this um, global methane, methane pledge 2.0, as I think you're calling it. But tell us why methane is so important, right? It's a very potent uh, greenhouse gas, 80 times more warming than CO2, um, but it's also short-lived in the atmosphere, right? So w- what does that mean? Yeah, so, you know, not all uh, greenhouse gases are the same or have the same effect. And you're right, methane on a 20-year basis is 80 to 86 times more heat-trapping than CO2. And so if you can stop a molecule of methane from going into the atmosphere and doing its thing, uh, that's, you know, a lot of bang for your buck, as it were. And so, um, you know, anthropogenic methane, methane emitted from human systems and by humans, uh, is something where we can have, or an, an area where we could have uh, high impact because we know how to address these emissions. These solutions are accessible, they're implementable, they're commercializable, and they're simple. They're things like plugging the leaks in oil and gas infrastructure along pipelines and pumping stations, right? It's it's dealing with agricultural waste better, not just leaving manure uh, in the fields and agricultural waste in the fields and using them instead as, as either feedstock or creating fuels from them. Um, and it's dealing with waste, especially biogenic waste, human waste, um, more efficiently and, and creating the conditions to also turn that waste into fuels and materials of value. So if we can think about new ways of dealing with these very simple problems, we can have a really high effect and, and um, impact the trajectory of warming in a way that we wouldn't ordinarily be able to do. Great. And I understand you're using the uh, climate finance tracker that... Um... Eric Berlow, uh, a data scientist, um, created um, with our help, it's hosted on Impact Alpha, to help identify some of those opportunities, right? Yeah, what a a great tool to to kind of get to the nitty gritty, the numbers of where the capital is flowing and really helps to identify where the gaps are, right? It helps us to understand where we need to move the capital towards these very simple and effective solutions and where perhaps capital is flowing to problems that are, you know, problem number 28 on the list where we can start to think about maybe being more effective with our capital. Ultimately, it's a tool where um, it gives us a line of sight into, you know, in the universe of funders, what could it look like to be highly effective with that capital uh, to meet the country roadmaps, to meet the needs of countries to reduce their methane emissions? And, and, And I think also can highlight the role of other entities, say corporates, um, and the role that they can play. So, you know, we've been doing this work uh, around methane, we being full cycle, have been doing this work around methane for a long time. And it's really great to see uh, the market catch up and really start to understand that it can play an outsized role in something really important in the very short time frame that we've got to effectuate it. Well, you know, we, we wrote a story this week um, about the sort of the narrative shift that is happening or needs to happen, right? Like there's, you know, the talk at COP always strikes me as coming from, uh, you know, a perspective of scarcity. Like there's a button, I don't know if you saw it, but people are wearing hashtag WTF, where's the finance, right? That's, That's the big backdrop is how are we going to find the capital to meet these shortfalls in climate finance yet? It's a huge opportunity, as as you were just talking about. Um, yeah, do you think that, you know, 
are, are people looking at it as an opportunity? And are you optimistic that the capital can uh, start to flow into those opportunities? Yeah, I am optimistic. So let me share something that um, I've been working on uh, that really highlights not only that we can be optimistic, but that it's achievable. So um, before this COP, you know, uh, myself and a, a few other partners got together um, to identify how we could build something of a, you know, multidisciplinary cross-sectoral program office, something that would launch uh, this project that we called the Global Methane Pledge 2.0. And a big part of that project is identifying where and how private capital, right, can come to the fore uh, to play its role in reducing methane. And, you know, um, when President Biden came here last week, you know, he said something that is both very true and, and I think was a call to action for all of us on the private sector side, which is this doesn't get done without the private sector's capital, resources, expertise, balance sheets, know-how. It's just impossible for governments to replicate uh, those resources in this effort. And so the private sector really does have to meet uh, the public sector. And so in thinking about the Global Methane Pledge, what we designed is something of a private sector secretariat, something that would organize funders and really identify the roles that uh, different kinds of capital, so debt capital, uh, blended capital, equity capital, um, thinking about how uh, we can start to segment by risk, you know, get folks early into projects that will do uh, methane reduction work, get folks into commercialized projects that will do methane reduction work, really be intelligent about how we roll the capital out. And then we took it a step further and said, well, wait a minute, corporates play a role too, both in their operations and countries that are that are putting out plans to reduce methane and in their value chains, meaning where they get resources and uh, and feedstock for their businesses and operations and where they deal with their waste and where it goes after the uh, operations are all said and done. So, you know, sometimes we just have to give folks a roadmap and that's exactly what this effort will do. It gives a roadmap for corporates and funders to be able to be highly effective. And it's all driven by uh, country roadmaps that are highly specific. You know, we've got a couple of technical partners in there that give us something called ground truth at the asset level, where are the emissions coming from? You know, so we can be highly tactical, highly focused around where we deploy those resources. Ultimately, this is a exercise of meeting the roadmaps with a lot of expertise that um, you just, you don't get unless you're, you're in this work day in and day out, unless you're making investments, unless you have operations. We know who the players are uh, who are doing all of that work. Folks can sign on to the Global Methane Pledge 2.0 as funders and as corporates and can play their role in facilitating and executing and implementing these plans that are coming out from countries that are signatories to the Global Methane Pledge. That sounds like a pretty good model maybe for other areas as well. Yeah, well, it's interesting you say that. So, you know, there are some areas of development where the rebuild that you might have to do with capital earmarked for losses and damages actually can go to commercial operating businesses, uh, you know, and operating assets. And so there's this intersection that's super interesting between the capital needed for losses and damages and capital on the private side that can be earmarked uh, for methane reduction. So things like rice paddy cultivation and waste operations and even different kinds of agriculture operations operate 
at this intersection. And so if we're thinking creatively around how we get losses and damages sorted and done, um, we can really start to think about these other pools of capital. And it's not double accounting, right? It really is a way to bring private capital to sort out some of the needs that government just hasn't been able to figure out in these difficult conversations. So, you know, we're, we're in touch with uh, <clears throat> some of the government teams. Of course, the U.S. Uh, is leading the way, and, and we're just trying to be helpful here to, to think about how we cobble this together and, and make something really successful out of our time here at COP27. Speaking of loss and damages, um, it's been a very contentious issue. And going into COP, um, there was a lot of uh, anger, right, from developing and emerging nations over this issue. And they've been promised, you know, again and again, you know, funding from wealthy nations to help them adapt to climate change, you know, and, and, and changes that are, that are happening already um, to mitigate uh, climate change and accelerate their transitions. And now um, to help them pay for some of the loss and damages that they are disproportionately um, suffering. Um, did you get a sense of that? Is there, has there been constructive debate or is this, you know, there's a lot of um, reports of finger pointing and, you know, and sort of tensions bubbling over. What, what's, what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen tensions necessarily bubble over, but I, it, it sure is something that um, is quite contentious. And, and I think rightfully so. You know, people are hurting around the world. And, and when these disasters happen, it's almost like countries are left to figure it out on their own. And that it's, it's fundamentally unfair. And so, um, you know, without informing or, or inserting, you know, as negotiations are still happening, without informing or inserting my opinion too much, I think um, it is something that people feel very strongly about and, and for sure came to the COP, um, you know, wanting to solve this issue once and for all, let's get to it. And, you know, it's, it's um, this might be a little wonky, but the problem is that you know, once the global north uh, starts to uh, admit culpability and responsibility, it's almost limitless uh, liability, right? And that's what folks at the government level are trying to navigate. Um, I think it's a poor way to navigate agreements globally to have to mitigate and think through, um, you know, uh, future liabilities. And so I don't really know how you construct uh, something of a solution in the current legal construct that we have. But I do think that uh, it's not also the case that there's no liability. And so we, you know, therefore we shouldn't have the conversation. Like that, that's not okay either. And so, um, you know, it's great. Secretary Kerry, again, has been a real leader here. Um, and instead, we will talk about it. And they're really trying to craft something. Um, what, what they'll come away with, I, I haven't been privy to, but I'm hopeful that they are uh, working through the night on something. Um, and one thing I would just highlight here is there's uh, another call to action happening here. Um, Al Gore was here. I think he might still be here. So Al Gore was here last week um, and kind of made commentary that was really striking around the development banks, right? And the role of development finance institutions that could be played, but currently um, is not being played because they were structured in an agreement out of Bretton Woods that is not uh, suited for the modern world that doesn't equip them to deal with issues of losses and damages or climate justice. And so, you know, there's a real call here for those institutions to uh, either be reformed, 
uh, rechartered or to behave differently so that they can play their role because you're talking about billions of dollars on the sideline that could both be uh, reparative and catalytic for the next chapter of uh, human development and the assets that need to come online to to you know uh, help the global south deal with some of these issues so you know we've got we've got big uh, systems change questions that we've got to answer and it, it's coming to a head here and let's hope we can get something out of this that that will be both productive and help us help to steer us in a different direction towards a little bit more of a fair solution for the global south and a little bit more of a um, you know way forward for us to build the next chapter of, of humanity. So in other big news this week, uh, the U.S. and China, the, the world's two largest emitters, are talking again. What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, you know, here is um, a little, something I think we can be hopeful for. So I don't know if this is breaking news by the time it'll it'll air, but um, today we were at the ministerial meeting for the Global Methane Pledge, um, and there was a bit of a, a tussle, not a tussle, but a little bit of excitement at the door. And lo and behold, uh, the Chinese Environmental Minister Xie uh, emerged. He he uh, delayed a meeting with the German Chancellor and came in to support his friend, Secretary Kerry. It was really exciting to see them together again. They had an awesome fist bump on stage. It's very clear they're, they're friends and they're trying to work this thing out. Um, you know, so that indicates that, look, they're talking and they, they really do wanna play a role in, in kind of collaborating, collaborating and, and figuring out how the US and China, the world's two largest economies, the world's two largest emitters, can start to take this uh, this really seriously and, and combine efforts, achieve economies of scale, collaborate in new and exciting ways. Um, it's it's the most important bilateral relationship for climate, and um, it's just really exciting to see see the guys back in the room um, do, doing their work together. So um, I don't know if that will be an official announcement that the U.S.-China alliance is back on. That was one of the surprises from COP26. It kind of fell off the rails a little bit because of some. Uh, geopolitical and political tensions over the last couple of months. Um, but here we are, and, and I would dare say, um, you know, let's cross fingers and touch wood. The U.S.-China alliance is back and we can get back to work thinking about the two largest economies getting together uh, to take some meaningful climate action. That is encouraging. Um, and, you know, that brings up um, you know, some of the geopolitical tensions, um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and all of the fallout from that, including um, energy security issues rising to the fore, um, food security. Um, but, but in the end, um, it seems like, and, and we wrote about that, we wrote about that this, um, this week, but it, it seems like uh, the Ukraine war is only speeding up the energy transition um, and that any of these setbacks um, are, are are and should be seen as temporary. What's your thought on that? Yeah, so I actually think it's a it's a mixed bag. Um, if we're being you know totally pragmatic and realistic, if I'm being an optimist, then of course we want to see that uh, the demonstration of how fragile our energy and food systems are pushes us towards uh, developing renewables and securing our food supply around the world. But the reality is uh, there are still uh, coal assets coming up back online. There are still fossil fuel assets being developed around the world to fill the gap uh, that's been created by the conflict in, in Ukraine. Um, so we do have to keep pushing. We do have to keep our finger on the pulse of, of where we can be developing renewables, how we can scale those technologies. 
uh, most effectively. Again, this is where capital and business models start to come into play about how we move more resources um, as swiftly as possible. Um, but it's really encouraging on the other side of that coin uh, to see the development of renewables, the innovation coming to the fore and the commercialization happening, not just in Europe, but around the world to deal with these wobbles that are being caused by this uh, geopolitical unrest. And so, you know, I'm really hopeful. You know, I think um, Europe has uh, a little bit of, an uns of uh, wobbly winter ahead uh, in terms of where energy will get sourced. I think it's next winter we really have to be worried about. But honestly, Amy, that's enough time to think about what we can uh, continue to develop in renewables and how we can start to create systems that will fill the gap that are not carbon intensive. Um, and so, look, uh, it's a silver lining to a really awful situation. Um, the specter of war is never the are never the conditions where you want to then say, you know, this is, uh, you know, the impetus to move in a different direction. But, you know, here we are and this is our status quo. And the question is, what are we going to do about it? Um, and I think if we can get governments to to make the right agreements, if we can scale renewables and if we can move private sector capital, we might have the the combination, the equation together to to leapfrog where we ordinarily might go in terms of scaling uh, sustainable infrastructure. This COP27 taking place in Egypt is a little different from past COPs, which have been, you know, had almost like a festival atmosphere with protesters, you know, very um, prominent and, and uh, you know, holding their own um, actions close to the close to the negotiations and the, you know, the main venue. Um, what is it like this year in Egypt? Yeah, I mean, I think, unfortunately, um, you know, there hasn't really been space made for for big protests. And, you know, protests are important to hear the, the voice of, of peoples who sometimes are silenced or don't have a seat at the table. And, you know, I think in, in this setting where 45,000 people come together and all countries are represented, it's really important to hear the voices of youth, of indigenous communities, of BIPOC communities. And, you know, unfortunately, there just really wasn't space, at least from my purview, what I could see uh, either inside the blue zone or, or outside of it um, to see more than kind of, you know, small, well-constrained protests. And I think it has to do with kind of the political environment here on the ground in Egypt. And, you know, it's, it's unfortunate to see that sometimes, um, you know, that is uh, the context in which we then develop uh, global agreements that affect everyone, you know. Um, if we're going to do so, then we should have at least uh, everyone represented or as best we can represent everyone at the table. And that, I can't say that was the case here. Um, but what was the case that was super interesting was to kind of see interfaith leaders um, come together and, and develop, you know, a real narrative around the fact that there's six and a half billion people of faith around the world. And if we're going to think about galvanizing individuals and communities and leaders to take action, um, that might be the right context to get people to the table to say, hey, there's something here that is a moral calling for what we should and could be doing for more climate action in service of people in service of communities. And, um, you know, that was really exciting to see. There were a couple of press conferences and a couple of events at Mount Sinai. You know, this is the, the cradle of civilization, right? And the cradle of faith. And so um, that was really cool to kind of see it come together and see people get involved. And I, I know I think we'll see a lot more of that in the coming year. So, you know, two sides of a coin, but, you know, uh, uh, definitely a, a different vibe here um, altogether in, in Charm. Thank you, Stefan. As always, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks, Amy. It's my pleasure to, to share all these insights with you. My pleasure to be with you. 
Um, it's a pleasure to be here just playing my part in uh, what happens next. And that's going to do it for this week's Impact Briefing. Thanks to Amy, Stefan, and our producer, Isaac Silk. Ready to try Impact Alpha? Sign up for Impact Alpha Open free of charge directly at impactalpha.com. Want to go deeper? Grab a subscription and get full access to the site, Agents of Impact Calls, and the daily email brief. Just go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe and choose an annual subscription. Thank you for listening. I'm Monique Aiken, Managing Director for TIP, the Investment Integration Project. Make sure to check back for next week's briefing. And until then, take care.